thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to the Real Food Reel. Today on the show we speak with Dr. Tommy Wood, qualified medical doctor who graduated from Oxford University in 2011. Tommy and I are here today to discuss all things insulin. Hi Tommy and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome, thanks for being here. Before we dive in today, can you share with us um, a little bit of background about yourself and um, where that's taken you to today? Yeah, sure. So I always, I always uh, mentioned that up until I was about 18, I didn't really have any interest in health whatsoever. Uh, I was very interested in um, various other things, and including eating a lot of cookies or biscuits, as we call them in the UK, and watching TV. Um, but then uh, when I went to university, uh, I became interested in rowing. I uh, started to uh, train a lot and also then eventually started coaching. I was doing a degree in biochemistry. It was my first degree. And I sort of, along that time period, became interested in um, nutrition and various types of training and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, sort of flirted with things like paleo and CrossFit and, and things like that. And then, then I went to medical school, uh, spent more time uh, coaching particularly and, you know, getting in, increasingly interested in, in nutrition. And then um, sort of things as I started to work as a, a junior doctor for a while in the UK and, you know, you're obviously very busy and it's basically just running around the hospital and trying to stay awake most of the time. Um, but, you know, through that time period towards the end of medical school and, and, and working as a doctor, uh, my stepbrother uh, got or was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and uh, as a sort of family we, we spent a lot of time going through the research trying to find out ways that we, we could maybe help him you know at least control his disease and through that you know found a lot of stuff to do with diet and, and lifestyle and, and all those kinds of things and then um, from there I actually went on I'm just finishing up my, my PhD now um, in uh, physiology oh, actually I look at I look at babies but uh, sort of on the side uh, over that time, I'd started to uh, write a blog, uh, do some lecturing and, and things. And so what initially started out as sort of looking at multiple sclerosis, um, I've now uh, gone through all kinds of um, research to kind of look at uh, health and uh, weight loss and, and all those kinds of things, particularly obesity, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes. Uh, but on the side, particularly over the last year or two, I've worked with um, in the US called Nourish Balance Thrive where we work with a lot of athletes you know we do a lot of um, stuff uh, particularly with uh, endurance athletes who are trying to fat adapt and uh, improve their performance you know with various kinds of testing and through their diet and lifestyle as well so kind of all that stuff has, has come together and uh, allowed me to look at uh, the body as a big picture uh, from you know down to the biochemistry and up to sort of like how that person interacts with 
with the world around them and, and how that affects their, their health and performance. Yeah, very cool. I'm sure you've got a lot more um, to share with us today. So you're obviously here to talk to us about insulin. So I just wanted to start with some basic information to set the scene. So for the benefit of our listeners, can you explain a little bit about what insulin is and what its role is, please? Yeah, of course. So insulin has, has become this much maligned thing nowadays with, you know, with good reason uh, in, in a lot of cases. It was basically, it's, it's a hormone that's released from uh, your pancreas, particularly in response to um, an intake of carbohydrates or protein. Um, although lots of things can stimulate insulin, just, you know, just thinking about food will cause you to cause you to release insulin because you're anticipating anticipating a meal um, and you want to be able to deal with, with that meal when, when it comes in. And what people um, talk about is that insulin is, is we call it an, an anabolic hormone, so it's kind of there to build things up, so build up fat, build up uh, muscle. Um, but actually, it's, it's probably its main role is, is an anti-catabolic hormone, so it stops you breaking things down. So um, the first things um, that insulin does actually is, is it acts on uh, and other cells in the pancreas, the alpha cells, and it stops them releasing glucagon. So glucagon is the hormone we kind of think is the main antagonist to insulin or one of the antagonists to insulin. And what glucagon does is it stimulates um, the release of glucose. Uh, release of glucose stores from the liver or you know, stimulates you to make more glucose, say, from amino acids or from, from glycerol, from stored fat. So the first thing insulin does is it inhibits um, um, glucagon release. And then uh, from there it goes to the liver and it stops you breaking down, um, stops you breaking down stored glucose as, as uh, glycogen. And then it goes out into the body and it stops you breaking down fat tissue. So particularly if we're, we're you know, people are talking about accessing fat stores either for um, energy, for performance, or for uh, you know, weight loss, uh, then the first thing that the insulin does is it stops you breaking down fat tissue. So, so actually, it's, it's, it's mainly there to stop you breaking things down. Um, and then it's also quite good at making you store fat. So it's much better at making you store fat than it is at making you store glucose. And we think about insulin as a, as a glucose hormone, uh, making you take glucose up into cells. But actually, your cells are pretty good at taking up glucose, you know, whether, regardless of whether insulin is there. Um, so... So it kind of, when we're thinking about how glucose acts in the body and, you know, what it's doing to kind of shuttle macronutrients around, which is actually, you know, one of its main jobs, we call it nutrient partitioning, you know, where, where calories should go, it's actually its main job is to, to stop us uh, breaking things down um, rather than, than building things up, except maybe fat tissue um, and, and sort of even less so glucose. So when people talk about insulin, they kind of they kind of look at it from from the wrong direction, but that kind of gives you a rough idea of what it's there to do. Yeah, absolutely, a great summary. So, what is insulin resistance then? So, insulin resistance is basically um, it's basically so I think of it as a, as a measurable output. So, insulin resistance is something that we can measure, you know, in the lab, or you know, there are some blood markers that we can look at that kind of give us a rough idea about whether somebody is insulin resistant or not. And, and it's basically your cells telling you that they don't want they don't want to listen to the signal of insulin. And what insulin is telling them to do in this case, you know, particularly in you know the standard Western setting where we, where insulin is high a lot of the time, um, you know, basically those cells can't 
um, are just saying, you know, no more. I, I can't, just don't want the signal anymore. And, and, and a big reason that that happens is because, so when I was talking about uh, the, the way insulin partitions macronutrients, so first, you know, you need much less insulin to stimulate fat uptake into cells than you do to stimulate glucose uptake. In a healthy person, it's maybe um, five times less to stimulate fat uptake four or five times less. Um, so by the time the glucose is going into the cells, you know, you, those cells have already taken up fat from the blood. And when you have fatty acids in your cells and your cells are trying to use them, they actually inhibit the use of glucose. So basically, um, if you have a high level of insulin, first uh, the fat goes into the cell, then the glucose comes into the cell, but the cell is already using fat and then the cell doesn't know what to do with the glucose because it's basically getting mixed messages because it's being told to try and deal with two fuels at the same time, which in the resting state, the cell actually isn't, isn't that good doing. Um, so basically what insulin resistance is, is the cell saying, you know, enough, you know, enough of these, enough of this energy. I don't want any more. Um, so I'm just going to turn off, I'm going to turn off the, the insulin signal so I don't have to listen. I don't need to take up, take up any more uh, nutrients essentially. So what's the outcome of that then? So the outcome, um, insulin resistance is associated with pretty much ed every chronic disease um, that, that we can think of, uh, particularly cardiovascular disease. Um, type 2 diabetes is obviously you know, one of the cardinal signs is insulin resistance. Um, you know, along the line of, uh, of city, uh, we end up with a, a degree of insulin resistance. And the two are kind of are kind of linked, but but they have some slightly you know some slightly different causes. Uh, but eventually, usually people who are obese will end up insulin resistant. Uh, but then also there's an association with um, uh, most cancers or many cancers. You know, the more insulin resistant you are, um, the the worse your blood sugar control. The more likely you get cancer. Um, so and and then you know they've even done studies looking at aging population so basically from the age of 20 up to 100 um the less insulin resistant you are the longer you are likely to live so it's pretty much tied into to everything that we're, we're trying to trying to improve on to improve the health of this of our society in general yeah absolutely so that leads to my next question so what is insulin sensitivity and how is this beneficial so insulin sensitivity is is exactly the opposite right it's basically um, with it's basically your body being able to do uh, what it wants um, with you know whatever you know, whatever um, nutrients you're using to fuel your cells at the right time and with relatively small doses of insulin um, and <clears throat> where this kind of you know so for somebody who is say an athlete you know when they are maximally insulin sensitive then they're probably going to be um, better at deciding what fuels to use when than somebody who is insulin resistant who you know maybe isn't going to be able to to switch between fuels or um intensities or you know just be able to to utilize their nutrients um most efficiently um where that kind of uh, where insulin sensitivity kind of um dovetails into obesity is something like um, insulin sensitivity obviously means that you're going to be very good at taking up nutrients into cells because if you're going to listen to that insulin signal and you can get that insulin signal up, then you're going to be very good at, at taking up nutrients into cells. So if you are somebody who is insulin sensitive and you're obese 
actually you are going to put on more weight because those your cells are going to be very good at, good at taking up um, uh, fatty acids and then storing them. And this is actually something, so a good example of this is the uh, sumo wrestlers. So we know that sumo wrestlers actually eat a very low-fat diet, um, but they do a lot of exercise, which keeps them very insulin-sensitive, but then they eat a huge number of calories, and then you know, a large number of those calories get very easily stored as fat because they're insulin-sensitive. So it's kind of, there's, there's a, when we're looking at insulin resistance versus obesity, there's, there's kind of a... Um, there's kind of a balance there because if somebody is insulin sensitive and they eat a high calorie diet, they will store more fat and uh, you know will become more obese. But that's actually almost a protective measure because the longer you can do that and the longer you can store fat without any negative consequences. Obviously, we don't like it as a society because we don't want people. You know, we think people shouldn't be obese, but actually, that's almost a protective measure for them because as soon as those um, calories can't be stored as fat, they're going to be elsewhere in the body and that's where they cause more havoc. So it's actually almost a protective measure. And then when um, the fat starts to become insulin resistant because it's had too, you know, too, too much of an influx of energy for a too long period of time, then that starts to cause a knock-on effect for other tissues in the body because the fat isn't there acting as a sponge to kind of take it up. Yeah, it's an interesting, I think, scenario when we talk about the sumo wrestlers um do you think there's a bit of a disconnect there though that we would almost assume that insulin resistance is linked with obesity and insulin sensitivity is linked with being lean yeah uh we would um Mm. but we have people on we have people on both ends of the spectrum Mm. so on the other end of the spectrum you have people with lipodystrophy who who can become very insulin resistant but have literally almost zero not zero but very very little body fat Mm. Um, because they cannot store, they cannot store fat. So, so the insulin resistance and obesity are linked because eventually each individual person will get to a point where their fat cells are no longer going to be able to efficiently take up excess calories. And then those, you know, calories become, you know, they become damaging because then they have to be taken up into other tissues like the liver or the muscle tissue where they're then going to start interfering with metabolism. So it's kind of each individual person has the amount that their fat cells can take. And to that extent, it's a protective measure. And then from anything more than there, it's going to cause issues elsewhere in the body. Um, And then that's where you get a link between insulin resistance and obesity. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So when you said um, insulin sensitivity or one of the advantages of that being you're better at fuel utilization, do you think then that insulin sensitivity is linked with being more metabolically efficient? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Mm. Well, what do you mean by in, what do you mean by metabolically efficient? So the ability to burn both glucose and fatty acids at varying intensities. Yeah. So um, yeah, because when you talk about metabolically efficient, actually, when when we want to say lose weight. Um, then we actually want to be metabolically inefficient, right? Because we want to produce less energy for the amount of calories that go in. And so say that's why we recommend maybe people increase their protein intake because then more of that energy is turned into heat because that's inefficient. Um, And we also know that people who are uh, insulin sensitive, particularly or metabolically flexible, if we want to call them that, they're also, you know, they're more likely to to be inefficient in the mitochondria in certain in certain um, scenarios, to then actually they 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 burn through more energy for for the amount of um, ATP that they produce. So actually, it's an inefficiency, um, particularly by generating heat 
that, that can that can then almost help you with weight loss. Um, but when we're talking, yeah, but when we're talking about metabolic flexibility, that's basically um, essentially. I think most of us want to be running on a, a fat-based metabolism most of the time because you want to be able to access you know stored body fat. You want to be able to you know, not necessarily have to eat all the time and, and, you know, when you're doing that, not, you know, eat up your muscle tissue, which is the kind of the early response to somebody who's insulin resistant, who then say doesn't get an influx of calories. Um, so then, so then absolutely metabolic, uh, flexibility, flexibility, if we want to call it that is, is an ability to, to choose the right fuel at the right time. So if you are just at baseline, it would, it would probably be just, um, relying on on stored stored body fat say in the ideal scenario and then if you're going to go and um sprint up a hill then then it kind of accesses your uh, the glycogen that you've got on board and then and then you're able to to easily switch back and then also partition whatever you take in afterwards um to go to the right places so that then you can use them when you do it again sounds like the ideal scenario to me yeah so a lot of our listeners should be aware of this, but just while we're on the topic, there's probably some people wondering how they can find out. Um, mm-hmm. How would you test for resistance or sensitivity? So there some some basic. Uh, you can do some basic blood tests. Um, you know the, the the gold standard way uh, to look at this in the lab is with a, a euglycemic a euglycemic clamp, where basically you look at. Um, how much insulin you need to deal with a certain amount of glucose, but it requires you know needles and infusions and all those kinds of things. So so people in general you know don't do that. Um, so a, another way that kind of that correlates pretty well with that is something called the HOMA IR, and that's basically a, a you can Google it. It's on the the calculation is on Wikipedia, but basically it's it uses your fasting blood glucose and your fasting insulin to give you an, an to give you an idea of how insulin sensitive or resistant you are. So you know, so a fasting blood glucose and a fasting insulin give give you a, a good idea. And for a fasting insulin, uh, we might want to see a number under ten, maybe under five. Um, uh, which is which is usually a good sign, uh, and then similarly, a, a fasting blood glucose at least under uh, it depends what um, units you use in Australia, but um, five, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So under five, you know, maybe uh, close to four point five or close to four, um, and then and then some uh, another good, you know, very simple marker is something like a triglyceride to HDL ratio. If you have your lipid tests. Um, you know, I think we put too much stock in in the basic sort of cholesterol tests, but um, particularly for Caucasians, actually, the triglyceride to HDL ratio is good. Um, in in people of Asian or African origin, it doesn't seem to work quite as well. So that would that would be a, a personal thing, and and um, and I think that's something that not enough people mention. They they use the triglyceride to HDL ratio, but actually, it depends on the population that you're working with how how useful a measure that is. Um, but if you can get access to to those things, those are just basic blood tests that you can get, you know, at, at your GP or your doctor. Then, then that that can usually give you a rough idea. Great. So let's talk more about day to day. How does a standard mm-hmm. Australian diet or a standard American diet impact insulin? Could you take us through maybe some examples of conventional foods and the flow on effect for factors such as energy, satiety, cravings, moods, hunger, the whole cascade? Oh yeah, so so basically the the standard 
I'll call it the standard Western diet because yes. we also have it. We have it in the UK as well. <laughs> <True>. um, <laughs> it's been exported all over the world. But basically, it, it's usually some kind of combination of refined carbohydrate with refined fat, um, and usually a, a lot of the a lot of the sort of beneficial micronutrients that we might want have, have kind of been sucked out of that in, in, in some way. Um, so when um, we eat something. So we'll, we'll say we eat something like a like a pizza. That kind of gives us gives us a, a, a good balance of all those things. Um, and then, or maybe you have some fries on the side, so you can have some superheated vegetable oils uh, to go with it. <laughs> the perfect combination. Um, the perfect, the perfect storm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so there's an interesting thing here where we, we we've been told that. Uh, Glycemic index is a really important thing. So the glycemic index is basically how much your blood sugar goes up for a given number of carbohydrates that you eat. And if you eat uh, carbohydrates with a fat source, then that is going to um, that's going to reduce the glycemic index. So your blood sugar goes up less, and, and you know that's supposedly a good thing. But the problem is that um, when you actually when you add uh, fats to carbohydrate, you can actually increase the insulin response so you, you the the insulin index so actually even though your blood glucose goes up less for the for the amount of blood glucose for the amount that your blood glucose goes up your insulin goes up even more and, and this happens even more with saturated fat uh, than it does with polyunsaturated fat though uh, again that's not necessarily a bad thing because like we said if you are trying to stuff too much in then you almost want your body to become insulin resistant it's like a it's like a feedback mechanism but anyway so so we, we eat our pizza and fries and, and our insulin goes up uh, through the roof uh, particularly. And then what happens is um, the first thing I said uh, the insulin does is it turns off glucagon. So glucagon is kind of like your buffer um, to produce blood glucose um, or you know produce available calories for the cells, um, particularly when blood glucose is dropping or when, when you haven't had anything to eat. So you kind of, when blood, when blood insulin goes up that much, you essentially completely bludgeon glucagon and sort of um, drop it down as, as low as it'll possibly go. And then, and then what happens is your insulin shoots up, you know, at, at those levels, it's very good at just stuffing stuff into cells. So fat, glucose, basically just sticking it wherever it will go. Um, and then um, on the other side, uh, blood insulin stays very high calories goes into cells, glucagon stays low, and then blood sugar comes down. And all of a sudden, actually, we've, we've, we've stored all of this, all the calories that came in, and then we, we have none that are kind of immediately available for, for our next, you know, to, just to continue functioning, because glucagon isn't there to tell us yet to, to release some glucose, say, stored in the liver, and everything that we ate has already been partitioned and stuck away in fat cells or muscle cells or, or whatever. Um, so then, as blood sugar comes down, um, we start to feel hungry again. And that's where sort of this cycle of cravings that we talk about, particularly with a standard Western diet, starts to, starts to come into play because actually we're, we're inducing such large swings in our hormones that basically we're never really sure um, about, you know, our, our brain isn't sure about the amount of energy that we have on board. So it basically just, you know, wants us to take more in. Um, so that's kind of in the short term, but in the long term, uh, I mentioned the fact that we've kind of removed a number of um, the, the micronutrients. So then, you know, say we become 
you know, relatively deficient in potassium, um, and and then then something like sodium becomes an issue. So we talk a lot about sodium in terms of things like blood pressure and stuff, but it's only really an issue if we're low in potassium, and and we don't, and if we're not eating, say, vegetables, then we're, we're not going to get any potassium. Similarly, um, magnesium is very important for insulin sensitivity, and and if we don't get enough magnesium, then we cause issues. Uh, say, if we're an athlete. Um, we're eating a diet low in zinc, say, because we're eating a standard Western diet, then we get problems with um, hormone production, and athletes are very good at uh, losing zinc through their sweat, um, particularly endurance athletes. So, so then that causes sort of a knock-on issue. Then we've got things like um, our omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. So we're getting lots of omega-6s from the vegetable oils that we fried our chips in, but we're maybe not getting any omega-3s and, you know, both uh, the omega sixes on their own cause an issue, as you know, as they do as an imbalance with omega threes, um, and then you know we can talk about lots of things like the effect on uh, the gut microbiome. So then we've got you know we're not feeding uh, the bacteria in our gut maybe w- what they want to eat. So then they so then we we create a population that's that's probably less beneficial. Um, in terms of long-term metabolic health. Um, and, and the gut microbiome is basically very good at adapting to the physiology that you're trying to create. So if you're eating a very calorie-dense diet, then your microbiome will adapt to be able to make the most of those calories, which might actually then increase your chance of gaining weight and, 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 and becoming a beast. So your microbiome is there. You know, you're, you're eating the standard Western diet. All these you know, calories, you know, usually micronutrient-poor, nutrient-poor, um, and, and your microbiome thinks, okay, this person is putting all this stuff in and it wants us to do something about it. So we'll get really, really good at absorbing, you know, helping them absorb the calories and, and then they can store them. Um, so, so, that, so that becomes an issue. Um, and basically, uh, the whole thing just, just means that we end up with cells that have um, too much energy than they're, more energy than they're able to deal with, um, usually we've become uh, deficient in uh, something like uh, you know our you know our ability to handle oxidative stress, so oxidative damage. Um, if we've created a, an inflammatory gut microbiome, then you know adding particularly adding more fat to that means that we we take up more uh, inflammatory um, inflammatory factors from the, the the bugs in our gut. So and, and you know then the inflammation within the body also increases insulin resistance. So there's kind of a knock on effect that that basically that kind of fiber-poor, nutrient-poor, calorie-dense diet essentially, essentially messes with everything. Um, and, and, <laughs> You've and, summarized and, it then perfectly. And, 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 yeah, and then, and, then, and then we end up with the problems that we see today. That's, that's essentially the summary. <laughs> Very good summary. Unfortunate, unfortunate summary. So then on the other hand, let's talk about more of an LCHF or real food approach and how that yeah. – um, I guess, benefits or improves the scenario. And then I'd love you to touch on the ketogenic approach and any differences there. Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the, the LCHF movement, um, the low-carb, high-fat movement, is something that I'm, I'm, a, I'm really a big fan of. Um, for some reasons, I'm not a big fan of for other reasons. And, and where I think it's initially important is, is it's a very good um, therapeutic approach because say if you've got insulin resistance, um, that basically means that you're insulin intolerant. We'll say it. We'll say that because you, you know, or carbohydrate intolerant people yeah. usually say because they equate carbs with insulin. Um, 
So you're basically carbohydrate intolerant. So then trying to add more carbohydrates to that just doesn't really make any sense. And, and we've seen, you know, there are lots of studies and, and the evidence is slowly increasing. And um, the problem is that the studies are all designed very differently. So you it's very difficult to, to create this, this big body of, of perfect research because every time somebody does a study in in the LCHF world that they're, they're either trying to prove that it's prove that it's good and then maybe they restrict carbohydrates a bit more they really focus on uh, nutrient quality food quality um, or they're trying to um, you know maybe prove that or trying to disprove the LCHF theory so then they'll do something where you know they don't really restrict um, they don't really restrict uh, carbohydrates that much. You know, they add lots of saturated fat, and saturated fat plus carbohydrates is very good at inducing insulin resistance. And then they show that you know it, do, it doesn't really work. So, so we're kind of stuck in this quagmire of, of different people with with um, different agendas trying trying to find the right way. But but I think we are seeing that you know particularly for people who are insulin resistant, restricting carbohydrate intake at least initially um, is a good way of restoring metabolic health, or at least getting getting in that direction just because you're not forcing the body to deal with the things that it needs you know it's, you're not forcing it to deal with something that is actually not very good it's ended up not being very good at dealing with and so say carbohydrates um you were gonna ask a question i was just going to ask you though and you might touch on it but um what about longer term and if it's say too low carbohydrate that it could create insulin resistance yeah, so that's <clears throat> we we talk about um, physiological insulin insulin resistance, which is basically um, it's basically this thing where um, if you drastically restrict carbohydrate, your body does want some carbohydrate, you know, very small, you know, very small amounts, maybe you say twenty to thirty grams of glucose a day, and that can come from muscle tissue. It could come from turning glycerol from fats into glucose. Um, and, and but basically, your body then wants to partition it so that all of that glucose goes to the brain uh, and and the red blood cells, which can only really use glucose for for energy. And then, if you were to you know for, for somebody in that state, if you were to measure how insulin sensitive they are, they would be very insulin resistant. So then, you know, the immediate response is to say, well, hang on a second, this person ate low, you know, a very low carbohydrate diet. Now they're insulin resistant, and that's not a good thing. But it, that's very different from the insulin resistance that is generated you know, from the standard Western diet. Mm. However, um, particularly, I think, I think we're only really seeing that in a population of people who, are, who had uh, metabolic issues to start with. Wow. So say that, you know, they're recovering from, from a long period um, of metabolic problems, be that type of diabetes or, or obesity or, or, you know, cardiovascular disease. And they're usually sedentary. So, so they're not, um, you know, the muscles are this, are this really, really great um, sink for glucose, um, and also, you know, when you activate the muscles, then they're also very good at, you know, you know, sucking up calories if you want to, you know, want to, you know, make it that simple. And so these people who are very sedentary, dramatically restricting um, carbohydrates, their body just gets a, a little bit um, confused. Um, and, you know, then they're just trying to partition, you know, calories in, in sorry, I, I've lost my train of thought. They're just trying to... Um, they're just trying to get glucose to the brain because the brain is kind of desperate for it. And this happens in, in the short term particularly. So if you put somebody uh, with um, type 2 diabetes, they stay very sedentary, so they haven't got those muscles as a buffer, and um, you dramatically restrict carbohydrate, then they will become insulin resistant because the body is just trying to shuttle glucose up to the brain. But if, on the other hand, you take an athlete 
um, you put them on a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet, um, and they are very active, um, they will actually remain insulin sensitive, and you can measure their insulin sensitivity, and, and it actually remains very good. So, so it really depends on the person that you're dealing with. Yeah, interesting. And so, we're going to talk more about the ketogenic diet and how that differs. Yeah. So, well, first, I was um, going to mention on, on the low carb on a low carb diet, where I see um, part of the issue arising is the fact that um, people essentially. They think in, the, in they, they think very black and white. So they're like, well, well, carbs are bad. So as long as I don't eat carbs, then it doesn't matter what I eat. Mm. Um, and and the problem with this is it doesn't really address all those other things that I talked about before. It doesn't address um, micronutrients. It doesn't address, say, um, some fiber that you might want to feed uh, certain populations of bacteria in the gut. Um, you know, it becomes often you know just like. Uh, cream and cheese and bacon, and it's very sodium heavy, so people become relatively potassium deficient, uh, which can cause issues. So, so there's a real. So this is where this is why I always like to talk about real food as, as a starting point, because I think for many people, um, if you just focus on um, something like nutrient density, so you know you get some uh, some high quality meat, lots of vegetables, you know fats from you know maybe sources that you can sort of generally find in nature rather than. Uh, refined vegetable oils and things like that, and just those very basics mean that you you can't really get in that calorie dense food, but also you're going to get all those micronutrients that you kind of need to to maintain cellular health. So that's kind of where that's where my beef will say lies with with the um, with the low carb high high fat community is often they they don't think about food quality. Yeah. Then. Then when we go to the ketogenic diet, obviously we're, we're just restricting carbohydrates even more, um, and, and we often end up restricting protein as well, um, because protein is insulinogenic, and if you um, spike insulin, then you stop producing ketones. And ketones are basically just a fuel um, created by burning fat um, in the liver, and, and then you get excess acetyl-CoA. Uh, which doesn't go into the Krebs cycle and, is, and then turn into ketones, which can then go and fuel fuel other parts of the body. And for a for a therapeutic effect, um, I think is is incredibly important. People, particularly with neurological disease, uh, certain types of cancer, uh, you know, the, the ketogenic diet is is something that I think is going to become you know more and more popular uh, in that realm. However, again, I think you know people just assume that. Um, the ketogenic diet is some kind of panacea and we're not really seeing that. So people often lose weight very, very quickly um, on a ketogenic diet, although not everybody does. And that, again, usually comes back to the total amount of calories they're eating and their food quality. Um, and you could eat a huge amount of fat, no protein, um, no carbohydrate, and you could still, you know, there's still the potential to gain weight there uh, just, just because there's too much coming in. And, you know, we try to talk about the fact that calories don't really matter, but just at some point they are going to matter. And if you're just eating fat, you could spike your ketones very high, or you could take an exogenous ketone supplement, or you could, um, uh, you could take some medium chain triglyceride oil, which, which, you know, is is very good at being converted into ketones, and you can get your blood ketones very high. And when people think their blood, when people's blood ketones are high, they think, well, you know, therefore I'm in full fat burning mode, and the fat is just going to melt off me. But <laughs> actually, you could you can artificially jack up your ketones, and then what they can do is they can actually release insulin because they are a form of energy. But they can also ketones feed back onto hormone sensitive lipase, which is the the um, the main um, enzyme that's breaking down stored um, fat tissue and, and and actually inhibit it. And that's a normal 
that's a normal response because normally when we're in ketosis, so nobody um, up until now, nobody was in ketosis whilst eating a calorie replete diet. That's something that we have created recently. Previously, we were only ever in ketosis when we were in some kind of starvation mode. And then you want to store some of the store of fat that you've got because you don't know how long it's going to be until your next meal. So then ketones actually feed back and stop you producing more ketones or burning more fat as like a normal safety mechanism because you want to store, you want to keep some of the energy you've got or else you just burn through it immediately and then you've got nothing left. Um, whereas the rest of the time when we eat, we'd maybe eat you know, a fairly good hit of protein because we've found some kind of meat source, you know, and then that's going to stop us being in ketosis. Or we're going to find something that's got some, you know, amount of carbohydrate in it, and that's going to stop us being in ketosis. So ketosis normally happens in calorie restriction or starvation, and that's a normal response. That's what allowed us to be, you know, the very um, successful species that we are. But you know, it's, nowadays we can sort of jack up our ketone levels with various things and think that we're, you know, we're doing ourselves good, and that's not necessarily the case. What do you think about the application of keto to the general population? So I think that if you are maximally healthy, you should be able to move in and out of ketosis quite happily. So say, um, I think people should do uh, periods of fasting, um, they probably should do periods of, you know, and that that includes some kind of protein restriction, which we know, especially for longevity, that that can that can be important. But you should be able to wake up, um, not eat for many hours. Maybe you don't eat for a day; it doesn't cause you any issues, and for that day, you'll be in ketosis. But then you'll 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 eat a meal, you'll come out of ketosis. You know, your calories will be proportioned um, correctly. They'll go to where you want them to go, and then you know things will kind of you know, go back and either you'll keep eating for that day or the next few days, or, you know, maybe you don't eat and, and the body should be able to move in and out of those phases, um, easily. I think that's what determines what we call me metabolic flexibility. So, so I think that everybody should be able to spend periods of in ketosis. That should be something that's very natural to us. Um, and we have to kind of force it nowadays because that's just not really something that, that we're used to because we're just, we have access to food all the time. Um, but I think a continuous ketogenic diet all day, every day for months and months on end, I don't think that's a necessary thing. Um, and when we do that, we actually become metabolically inflexible in, in the other direction. So then we, 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 we can't really metabolize glucose properly um, or carbohydrates properly because our body is only used to dealing with ketones and fats. And I'm, and I'm not sure that that's a good thing either. So, so I think that we should be able to use, use both you know, very naturally and, and come in and out of ketosis as, as I think people, people have done previously. Uh, that's just not, it's, it's something that we need to force. Like I said, it's something we need to force nowadays. Yeah, I agree. I think flexibility is key. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the um, exogenous ketones and where do you see their application? So where, you know, I, I really think that they are going to, they're going to be beneficial. Like, again, uh, neurological disease, mm. um, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, um, you know, they've, they've shown just, just giving a, an MCT oil to, to patients with um, Alzheimer's, you know, is, is beneficial for cognition because those get converted to ketones. And, and so then some kind of stable ketone or ketone ester that you could take would, you know, would, would have a similar effect. Um, certain types of cancer, again, particularly because uh, ketones can, can suppress uh, blood glucose levels, which, which might then be part of a sort of a multi-pronged attack or metabolic attack on 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 cancer, um, and then 
<clears throat> particularly for endurance athletes, I think they, they come into play. So um, Chris, who runs the, the clinic Nourish, Balance, Thrive, I work with in the States, you know, he is a, an elite uh, professional mountain biker and he you know, uses ketones, particularly on, on his longer rides, as a source of fuel. And there you can kind of uh, keep your body in ketosis and, and, and stop you, you know, and prolong that kind of breaking down of muscle tissue over, over you know, a, a longer race. So then, so I, I think in that kind of scenario, um, particularly in the endurance performance world, then I, then I think ketones could definitely come into play there as well. And does that still work if the race has periods of high intensity? So it depends. It will, it will kind of depend on um, the length of the race. But if mm. most of the race is kind of a, a baseline pace and, you know, I sort of take my cues from him because he's, he's uh, a much, he's been a much, you know, I, I've tried my hand at many different sports and, but I've never been that successful at, at any of them just because that's just my, um, you know, that's just, blame that's just how, <laughs> yeah, blame, blame my parents. Um, but, um, I think if you, if you, so he says that, so say if you have something like a, so, so this could count for a long mountain bike race, but it could also count for a marathon or, you know, an Ironman even. If you're having, if you're getting to points where you're suddenly having to sprint, then you've paced yourself incorrectly, right? Because then you're, you know, you aren't working at, at the best possible pace for the longest period of time. And if you then, if you're then starting to sprint, you're probably going to pay for it later. Mm. So in, so in that case, then it's maybe just a case, you know, then um, remaining in a, in a more fat adapted state using something like exogenous ketones if you needed to, but you know you might want to take a small amount of very slow absorbing carbohydrate or a fat source or something at the same time, um, amino acid source maybe. Um, then that's maybe that's maybe where you should focus. But if you are going to do periods of sprinting, I think it, it can still be beneficial because if you are a generally um, fat adapted athlete, then you are going to more likely to defend the glycogen that you have and you're going to and you're not going to rely on that glycogen until um, a much higher intensity so you will save that glycogen for when you really need it so for the for the same race you can rely on fats and ketones up to a higher intensity and then you will have more glycogen available for more sprints or more you know intervals you know during that race so i think it has so i think it so i think it will benefit people um, even if they have periods of high intensity, but probably, you know, if you're just, you know, if, you, if you're just a, a sprinter, say, and it's only going to be 10, 20 seconds or, you know, a minute, then, then maybe, you know, the, the overall, the overall balance means that you need to be more in, in more of a, a glycolytic state. And then, and then they'll probably have, uh, you know, less of a beneficial effect. Yeah, I agree. Great. So really cool so far. Lots of great information. Two more topics I want to cover. Uh, okay. One is stress and two is strength training. So stress and the impact on insulin. Talk us through that. Yeah, so so we talk about um, stress particularly um, has, has multiple negative effects um, on this whole kind of blood sugar regulation thing. But, but basically what, what happens is when you get stressed, um, you release cortisol so, or an adrenaline. Uh, and they're basically um, hormones that are very good at releasing um, stored energy, particularly stored glucose. So, so um, releasing glycogen, and, and and also to some extent, particularly uh, adrenaline is very good at releasing um, stored um, fat tissue. 
um, because you need that as a source of energy. Um, and in, and cortisol would be good at that if you, as long as you aren't, as long as your insulin isn't high at the same time. Uh, but usually when we're stressed, we, um, you know, very sort of carbohydrate rich foods and then you kind of, you lose that effect. Um, but so basically what happens is that if you're stressed, your blood sugar goes up. And also, um, particularly um, in the central areas of the brain, you release something called corticotrophin-releasing hormone, which is basically the initial hormone which tells your body to release cortisol. And that can actually have, have a very pro-inflammatory effect. And inflammation, like I mentioned earlier, can cause insulin resistance. So when you're constantly stressed, you um, will dramatically increase your blood glucose, but you can also you know, feed back into the cell and make those cells more insulin resistant, which kind of becomes a feed-forward effect in terms of um, blood glucose and blood glucose regulation. So this kind of chronic stress picture gives us, you know, gives us um, higher blood glucose and can can make us more insulin resistant in the long in the long term. Yeah, good summary. And what about strength training? Why should we all lift weights? <laughs> um, I'm I'm a huge fan of people lifting weights just because. Um, if if you look at some of the some of the some of the scientific literature, um, people who have more muscle mass uh, tend to be protected against metabolic problems, um, particularly things like obesity and type two diabetes. Uh, but even more important than that is that people who are stronger live longer. Um, and it's it's there's probably a number of reasons for that. And I think in the in the sort of short to medium term, you know, the more muscle mass you have. Um, the more of a buffer you have in terms of um, energy that's coming in and, and, and going out, and it's kind of and the, the you know a, a fully functioning muscle cell is just is is a very you know has an anti-inflammatory effect. So when you work your muscles, they release um, cytokines that then actually can reduce inflammation, um, can uh, in the you know sort of reduce uh, blood glucose because that's kind of it's become a sink uh, a sink for glucose. Um, and then in the, in the longer term, you know, when people get, you know, above maybe 70, 75 years old, um, then we, you know, we're in a world that's worried about obesity and, and heart disease. But when you get to that age, you know, what's probably going to kill you is when you fall over and break a hip. Um, and, you know, if you fall over and break a hip and you're in your 70s or 80s, you have a 50% chance of dying over the next year. And, and you know, this is where I kind of get worried about people in this kind of um, low carb, high fat, and, and um, keto uh, worlds, we'll say, because um, and, and actually, it's very similar in, in the in the vegan world or the nutritarian worlds, where they're kind of talking about protein restriction. Is that in the short term, all of those things you know can be beneficial to people. You see an improvement in metabolic health. You know, uh, long term fasting, you know, has a very simple. You can have a very similar effect. But all of these things, if you don't manage them properly, don't fix the problem that you will generate in the muscle. So if people are insulin resistant for long periods of time, they break down that muscle. Um, and then when they lose weight, they lose even more muscle. And maybe in the short term, that doesn't have a big effect. But in, you know, you know what somebody's metabolic health is over the next year, you know, they feel better because they've lost weight. They look better in the mirror. And that's you know, very important in the short term. But what happens 30 years down the line when they never get that muscle tissue back and then they fall over? You know, and then that person is going to be hospitalized and it's going to have a lot of problems. So, so I think you know, these dramatic shifts in diet are really good um, at creating or you know, helping metabolic health in the short term. But then for you know, the real long term um, 
bet you know benefits or health we really need to be moving more you know nobody needs to be a bodybuilder nobody needs to have huge biceps or you know quads or anything like that but you you know you need to be able to move your body weight at least you know and have functioning muscle that can do that and that's what's going to keep you going for for a really long period of time keep you insulin sensitive for a really long period of time um so that's where i see the benefit of of lifting weights yeah absolutely it's huge absolutely very very important i think we've covered heaps and i think you know i'm conscious of your time but also the fact that I'd love just to leave it there for today because it has been so interesting and I'm sure we'll get lots of questions and I'd love to have you back on the show because I could certainly ask you a thousand more questions. Yeah, of course. Um, But before we do wrap up, can you share with us um, where our listeners can find more information about you and how to follow you on social media? Yeah, so uh, you can find me everywhere as Dr. Ragnar, which is R-A-G-N-A-R, which is my middle name in case that confuses anybody. Um, So uh, drragnar.com, Dr. Ragnar on Facebook, at Dr. Ragnar on Twitter. Um, So people can also find me at Nourish Balance Thrive, uh, nourishbalancethrive.com, and that's where I do a lot of my my consulting work. I do it with Chris Kelly, who runs runs the website there. and yeah, absolutely. If you know, people can always email me, or tw- I'm I'm not very good at Twitter, but um, people can 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 tweet me questions and things. Um, and uh, generally, a lot, a lot of stuff uh, happens on Facebook um, as well. Amazing. Can you please tell Chris that I want to get him on the show? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm sure he'd be delighted to. He's a he's a, he's a you know he's a he's a real podcast pro because he has his own podcast. Um, and so he's a great guest. I've listened to him on multiple other people's podcasts and he's, he's always very, very good. As have I. Very cool. Thanks so much for your time today, Tommy. It's been awesome to chat and I look forward to having you back on the show very soon. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks again. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.